morning, Mosaic. All right, give me just a second to get a podium because I am not honestly skilled enough to stand here and hold things. I don't know. Hey, in case you didn't notice, I'm not Adam. I know. The resemblance is uncanny, but unlike Adam, I can't grow a beard. <laughs> Welcome. I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. About, I want to say 10% of you probably know me. Welcome. I appreciate you being here. We're going to do something different today than we usually do. So here is an interesting concept. I am not going to preach to you today. Is that weird? Yeah? Yeah? Well, here's why. Uh, I would love to be able to preach to you. It's one of my favorite things to do. I super enjoy it. Every time I get to stand up here, I have a great time. And I'm sure you do too, right? But the thing is, the topic that I'm teaching, thank you, that person. The topic <laughs> that I'm teaching about today, it's kind of impossible to preach. 22 minutes. John and Scott, what are you giving me here? Oh, that's how much time I have left. Sorry, guys. Probably going to take a little bit longer than that. The topic that I'm teaching on today is something that you cannot possibly preach over because, I mean, here's what I think preaching is. It's starting in the Bible, learning a deep fundamental truth that God taught through it, generally about Jesus, and then applying that to our lives and telling us how we should change because of it, right? But because what I'm teaching on today, I literally can't do that because I can't start in the Bible. Weird, right? You'll see why in a second. But first, who here has been in one of the how to read or study the Bible classes? Now, give me something more than just a hand raise. Thank you. All right. Thank you, both of you. I appreciate you. There were more in the 9 a.m. class, which I did not expect. I expected more to be in 11 because, frankly, there's more of you. But all right, we'll fix that. We'll get there. You may notice this. And they are very aware of this, everyone who's in that class. I am so passionate about the topic we're talking about today that I am very likely to just go off on random tangents. So I am basically, I want to say, deputizing you, sir. If I tangent way too far, just throw something at me, please. I need it. I trust you to do so. I expect that you will. All right. Who is this sermon for? First, it is for people who are what I want to say are open, open skeptics, people who are not sure what they think about Jesus yet, not quite positive whether or not you want to believe he is who the Bible says he is or that he did the things the Bible said he did. If you're an open skeptic, this is a great sermon for you. If you are a Christian who is relatively new to your faith or doesn't have a large grounding in the historicity or the history of our faith, this is a great sermon for you too. If you are what I'd like to call a closed-minded person, a person who is absolutely unwilling to perhaps think that maybe what you've learned in the past might possibly have been wrong, you probably, well, why are you here anyway? Hi. We're here to change hearts and minds, people. How should it not be used? And yeah, I haven't told you I'm preaching on or speaking on yet. Deal with it. We'll get there. One quick thing. How should it not be used? So help me, Christians. If I if I see you using this to mock or belittle non-believers online or to try and argue with them into the faith, I'm going to be so upset that I will rebuke you so kindly and gently that you will just feel so much shame. It's not even possible to understand how much shame you will feel. Do not use this 
to try and beat people in arguments. That's not the purpose of what I'm teaching you today. This is for the building up of your faith and the building up of the faith of others. So deal with it. But let's start with a story. I break phones often. <laughs> if you've never met me before, you should probably know that I am very clumsy. I am slightly worried every time I stand up here that I'm going to walk directly off of the stage. I dropped this pack that they specifically told me, hey guys, we had to tape part of it so it doesn't break. I've dropped it like seven times already today. Sorry, sorry, John, sorry. Hasn't broken yet though, woo! I break my phone all the time. In fact, the current phone that I have is an old iPhone XR. In the back cover of it where you have the lens for your camera, this is like the third camera I've had put in it and there is no lens anymore. It is just a giant gaping hole in the back of my phone. Fun thing about my phone as well, I don't know why, I don't know how, but the GPS chip just doesn't work, it's broken. It is weird, I didn't know this was actually possible, but the chip just doesn't work anymore. I will sit my phone on my dashboard and it will look back at me and be like, we don't know where you are. We have no idea. I'll start driving and sometimes it'll pick up where I'm going and be like, oh, you're probably moving this way. I'm still gonna show your car pointing the wrong direction, but you're reversing the entire way down this road. All right. Every now and then I'll be driving down the highway and it'll just get lost. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. Why'd you get off the highway here? Why are you over here now driving in the opposite direction? Like, I don't know GPS. I think I'm on the same road, but I'm not positive. My GPS is ridiculous. And I've realized I have some trouble getting places sometimes because of it. Because while I grew up in the era of not having maps or cell phones in your car, in case you're wondering, I was right around the MapQuest era. That's how you can usually, this is how I like to date people. What did they use to get around? Atlas, printed out MapQuest directions, TomTom, or your phone. You can tell right when someone started driving, right? I was printed MapQuest. I now no longer have any idea where I'm going at any one time unless there's a screen telling me where to go, right? And sometimes I can't get where I'm going because of it. I have to steal Christy's phone if I have to drive someplace I don't know. I'm like, hey, can you just put yours up there, please? Because I don't actually. Christy's my wife, not just a random person. Uh, can you put your phone up there, please, so I can know what's happening? You see, if your source of direction is unreliable, you will never know where you are or which way you're going. Simple, right? So what are we talking about today? Here is the title of this TED talk, I don't know, speech. Who cares about the Bible? Who cares? Why? Why is it worth caring about? I'm gonna take you down five different arguments Forgive me, that's a lot for any TED talk or sermon or speech, but there's five basic things I want you to be able to walk away with today. What is the Bible? Can we know when it was written, at least very closely? Can we know what it said originally? Can we believe it, and does it matter? I'll say those again. What is it? Can we know when it's from? Can we know what it originally said? Can we believe it and does it matter? So part one, what's the Bible? Who here has a physical Bible with them? Anybody at all? Raise that bad boy up in the air for me. Come on, yes! 
We got two, three. Can I see four? Four! Oh, wonderful. Please note, I'm preaching from an iPad, but I appreciate you bringing your Bibles here. <laughs> the Bible that you are holding in your hands is a miracle. Those of you who rely on technology for your Bibles, which I often do, that technological piece is a miraculous marvel. That was very redundant. Like much of what I'm gonna to say today, it was redundant. But the Bible is 66 different books in our tradition, written by about 35 different authors. Over the course of 1,500 years, that's literally the first one, if it were ending today, the first one was written in 500 AD, and the last one was written today. That's how long of a period we're talking that it spanned. Split into two main subsections, the Old Testament and the New. The Old Testament written about the things that came before the time of Christ, the New writing about Jesus and the results of Jesus' coming. This knowledge of Jesus and his message, the good news about him, that's the most important part. I want you to think about this real quick in your brains. Is it possible for a person to be a follower of Jesus if they've never seen a Bible, never heard it quoted, never got to actually read it? Can someone be a follower of Jesus if those things never occurred? And I would posit, yes. Because what one needs to know to be a follower of Jesus, they have to know some of the things he did, which people can say with their mouths, like normal humans. They have to understand what he did, and they have to believe that he resurrected or rose from the dead. That's all it takes to be a follower of Jesus. You don't need to have huge knowledge of the Bible to know that. Another question, could that person who learned about Jesus that way carry the message of Jesus well enough to be able to teach someone else about him even if they never had knowledge of the Bible themselves? I'd say, yeah, again, probably. And I say probably, but I have to say absolutely, of course, because for the first 30-ish years of the church's existence, the Bible didn't exist, the New Testament at least. And most of the world that the Bible, that the church went to, most of them didn't care all that much about the Old Testament. Paul, whenever he carried the words to Rome and to the Aragopagus in Athens, I think that's the word, probably right, close enough. Uh, whenever Paul went there, he didn't start with the foundation of the Old Testament and build up. He started with what they knew and explained who God was in their context. The message is the most important thing. That's why it spread so far, so fast, and why it was translated so often. I'd apply three different semi-large theological words to what I believe about the Bible. Uh, but I don't expect you to start there if that's not where you're at. But I believe the Bible is inspired by God, that he had a hand in directing the writing of the Bible, and that it is from him. I believe that the Bible is inerrant. That means that it is without error. And I believe the Bible is infallible, which, getting into real technical terms here, but the difference between that and inerrant is, inerrant is doesn't have mistakes, infallible is can't be mistaken. They're kind of different, but they basically say the same thing. Parenthetical aside, this is important. Parenthetical aside, in all things that were originally written, 
further parenthetical inside, in all things that God and the authors he inspired intended for it to teach. I have to put those two things in there because we know that we don't have physical copies of what was originally written. We have copies of copies of copies of copies of the Bible. What you're holding in your hands if you're holding a modern translation is roughly, I'd say, 10-ish generations of copies away from the original text. So the original is what we have to focus on. And that'll be one of the things we come with. Can we know what it originally said? But here's the other thing that it intended to teach. Let's read a point of the Bible real quick here. This is Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Now, this is specifically talking about the prophecy God is giving at this time, but I think it applies pretty generally to things like the Bible, things that God inspired or put forth. It will do what he intends for it to do. It will do what he purposed for it to do. That means that if I try to take it and make it say whatever I want, it's not what God purposed for it to do. I'm using it wrong if I do that. And also, that means that if God uses some language that we would say is uh, figurative or a colloquialism, which is a sort of thing that you would use in your culture to say one thing that may not be a technically right thing, but everyone knows exactly what it means, that's perfectly fine. The Bible's allowed to do that. Perfect example of this in our culture, sunrise. If I say, I'd like to meet you tomorrow at sunrise, you know what I mean. You know the time I'm saying, right? No one who's going to be like, well, actually, I don't know if you know this, but the sun doesn't actually rise. The earth turns. And so I can't meet you at sunrise because that doesn't happen. You know what I mean. People do that with the Bible all the time. There will be things that it says like, the wind came about from the four corners of the earth. Well, we know the earth doesn't have four corners. Therefore, Bible's wrong. Like, but that's not talking about physically where the wind comes from. It's using a term that's normal in their culture to say, wind was really bad, guys. It came from everywhere. They understood that. Same thing with sunrise and sunset. Same thing with so many other different parts of the Bible. What's intending to be taught there is a time, not an astronomical fact. Let's go with one that's a little bit more controversial. I think the elders are gone now. Oh, they'll watch online probably. Okay, ha, controversy, creation. Uh-oh, who's walking out? There are people who hold to a very specific literal reading of the first seven books of Genesis, seven chapters of Genesis, and they would hold that you can therefore see exactly how earth was started and how it moved along step by step by step, day by day by day, and it took a literal 24-hour period each time, and that's how the earth started. <laughs> then there are evangelicals who believe that the earth, uh, that the first seven chapters of Genesis are metaphorical. They're used to teach something, but what they're teaching is not exactly how the earth started, and therefore they're cool with things like evolution. It's all right. Now, so I don't get in trouble, please note, where I tend to sit on this is a lot closer to seven-day creationism than it is to purely secular evolutionary beliefs in how the earth started. 
I'm much more over here than I am over here. But I don't care if someone's over there because here's the deal. If we could take the first seven chapters of Genesis and explain second by second exactly what happened every moment as the earth started, as the universe began, exactly what thing was created when, exactly what order they were created in, how they came about, whether it was immediate or whether it took time, whatever, if all we walked away with was a timeline, we'd miss the entire point of the first seven chapters of Genesis. Because the point of those chapters is not to teach us a timeline of history. The point of those chapters is to teach us about the nature of God, who he is, and what he's done. If I could know the Bible perfectly, if I could memorize it from beginning to end, but I have not actually carried away with it what I'm supposed to learn about God and who he is, I've gained literally nothing. There is no point to having the Bible for knowledge's sake. It's all about him. But let's go with this. Scratch, infallible, scratch inherent, scratch inspired. If you are not at a point where you can believe any of those things, let's start somewhere else. Let's start and look at it from a book in history. When was this book written? When is it from? A lot of times as you're reading histories, if you're reading people who are very, very deep into ancient Near Eastern history or classical era history, and those people aren't from a Christian background, a lot of times they'll be like, oh, the Bible, Pfft, not worth actually paying attention to as a historical account. It's worthless. It was written way too far afterwards. There's no way it could actually have any knowledge of who God really is, right? If you're looking at something 200 or 300 years later, Pfft, what's it going to know about Jesus? That happens a lot. Who here has encountered someone who has said the Bible is far, far too late in writing for it to matter whatsoever? You can't really know anything about Jesus from it. You met that before? You've seen that before? Yeah. Fun story. Pretty much everyone, Christian and non-Christian historian together, argue that the books that are oldest in the Bible are likely the book of John, the gospel according to John, and the book of the Revelation of John. Because these two books probably have the most, I want to say, intricate theology of who Jesus is. They are very, very apparent that they are saying, Jesus is God. You have to know this about him. And they say it, like they're not just like whispering it, they're shouting it over and over again. So Christian historians say, this is probably the last one written because one dude who was a disciple of John told another dude, this is when John wrote it, and he was the last one to write. So we believe it because, you know, people in history said it was the last one. People who don't believe in those ancient histories would argue it's the last one simply because of how advanced it is in its teaching about Jesus. Do you want to know what the two earliest fragments we have of the New Testament are? It's a fragment of the Gospel of John and a fragment of Revelation. It's weird. The earliest fragment we have from the Gospel of John is from the early to mid-2nd century. That means that gospel, we have a copy of it from Egypt that was written between 125 and 150 AD. That's a real short time frame, guys, for something to move 900 miles and be copied a bunch of times. That's a real far distance. Do you know how rare it is to have an ancient manuscript that is that close to whenever it was originally written. Do you guys know how rare it is? 
Well, that's the only one, actually. When we look at every other ancient manuscript that anyone cares about, things like the Iliad or the Odyssey, the closest surviving portion of that is at least 400 to 500 years later. At least. We have 5,800 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament from the first century on through, I'm sorry, the second century on through the fifth century. 5,800. Over the course of about 1,000 years, the Iliad has 1,000. There are roughly 2.7 million pages of copies of biblical texts from those first 500 years. And that doesn't count translations. There are tens of thousands of translations of the Bible. It was translated all over the place, guys. All over the place. And that's because of its message as well, by the way. From the first 100 years after it was written, we have copies of, not full copies, but portions of, the Gospel of John, Revelation, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, Hebrews, and Titus. We have some pretty early portions of every one of those books. But not only that, we have people who mention these books. They didn't give us actual copies of them, but they mention it all over the place. There's a dude named Ignatius. That's the guy who was a disciple or a follower of Polycarp, who was himself a disciple of John, who wrote the book of John. Ignatius, in between 110 and 117 AD, I'm sorry, 100 and 117 AD, quotes in his works, Matthew, John, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, James, 1 Peter, 1 John, and Irenaeus from the uh, 180s, a different person, gives a full accounting of the New Testament and quotes in one work literally every book of the New Testament except for 3 John, which is literally a paragraph long. And it says many of the same things 2 John says. If you're quoting 1 John, you're probably quoting 2 John, you're probably quoting 3 John because they tend to say very similar things. We have some really, really early historical evidence of these books existing far better than any other book that we have. If you accept the veracity of anything you have heard or read about ancient Rome, you are relying on texts that are more in question than the Bible. If we know anything about history, we know about the Bible. It's really cool. I enjoy it. I'm a nerd, though. Can we know what it said? Sure, the original ones were written earlier, but how can we know what those original ones said? Aren't there a whole bunch of variations? Aren't there a whole bunch of different manuscripts that say different things and we don't know which was the original or not? It's crazy, isn't it? Like, over the course of like those 400 years in those copies, it looked like it changed a lot. So how do we know it's the original? Well, I just wanna show you just how hard it would be to look at a Greek text and try and figure out whether or not you can, hold on a second. Um, that's English. That's actually an English book. Uh, if you can see, you can actually see real quick, this here, right here. That's the word first. That's an old English spelling of the word first. This whole thing is written in English, guys. Languages change over time. I am perfectly comfortable using a translation that is modern as opposed to trying to read a translation like that. That's the Wycliffe Bible, by the way. It's the first Bible that was mass-produced in English. Following that, 
there was the King James Version, which I still don't like because it's kind of archaic language. I don't hate it. It's pretty good. I like the ESV just because. It's modern and I like it. That's what I got. I'll give you better reasons later if you want them. Anywho, whenever we say things like there are so many variants of the, old, of the New Testament text, what we're basically saying is, hey guys, as the Greek language evolved, just like the language of English evolved, grammar and spelling was updated to match what people used in that day. Duh. No one reads Attic Greek right now, and no one reads Koine Greek right now. If you go and talk to a person who speaks Greek, they do not read and say the same things that were written in the Bible. They have updated language that is still Greek, it's still descended from, but it's different. Yeah, we can look at what those early ones say and we can use different types of evidence to figure out what was likely said in the originals. But sometimes, guys, sometimes, I'm gonna be honest, this is one that's hard for Christians to hear sometimes, but sometimes we're not exactly sure what the perfect translation is. Let me give you an example. This is a verse, Matthew 9.29, Mark 9.29, Mark 9.29, and there's two different versions I've got here. One's the King James, one's the ESV. King James, this kind can come forth by nothing, but by prayer and fasting. I have lost my headset. We're back, all right. This kind can come forth by nothing but prayer and fasting. But then there's the next one. Go that way, go the right way, page. In the ESV it says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. <gasps> Where's the end fasting? Oh my goodness, there's a variant here. There's a difference. The ESV doesn't have and fasting in that verse. The King James does. The reason for that is because using texts that the people who translated the King James didn't have access to, we can now see that earlier versions, likely closer to the originals, didn't have the phrase and fasting on there. Likely it was accidentally tacked on by a scribe who was typing or writing out from a different typing out who was writing out from a different version, and they likely were just like, all right, prayer and fasting, yeah, da da da, da. Oh, wait, I'm in Mark, not Matthew, crap. It probably snuck its way in. But here's the thing, that doesn't matter. Really doesn't at all. You might be like, oh, that rocks me, but it shouldn't, because that doesn't change the meaning of the text one little bit. If you're reading this and trying to say, what this is telling me is the exact formula I have to use to cast out demons, this is about casting out demons, by the way. Uh, no, it's not. It's not what it's about. See, the story this is in is whenever Jesus is sitting there and a person comes in and says, hey, my loved one, your disciples tried to cast out a demon and they couldn't. And Jesus is like, oh, okay, get out. The demon gets out. And they're like, why didn't do it? Why couldn't we do it? The, the disciples are rocked. They're like, I couldn't get rid of it, but you could. What's up? I thought we had your power and whatnot. And Jesus is like, oh, that kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. Or by prayer, meaning Jesus is telling them they in their authority still have to rely on God for the removal of it. God's the one who can do it. But the fun thing about that story is who didn't have to pray or fast to cast out that demon? Jesus. This is teaching us about Jesus's nature. Hey, people, you're going to need prayer and fasting or to rely on God for this. Jesus didn't need to rely on that. What does that say about who Jesus is? 
it teaches us something about his nature. We learn about him. In all of the research I've done, every place I have looked through, and not just me, but I've researched people who research this, right? That's what I do. It's, in history, you very rarely look at stuff yourself. You look at what other people say about what you're looking at, and you pull together a consensus of what people are looking at. I can't find a single variant text that changes any actual important belief about Christianity. Everything we believe as followers of Jesus is not in question. None of those texts change anything. Everything we need to know, we'll know whether we read one version or another. That's kind of cool. How often do you see 10 people agree on the same thing on what's most important? You don't. But how about this? Can we believe it historically? Does that matter? Can we believe the things that it says that they actually happened? Well, yeah, we can. You guys ever heard of the Hittites? I've read about them in the Bible, I think. Pretty sure. Yeah, they're a group of people. It's an empire in the, in the Bible that was talked about as one that actually took the Israelites and was like causing them a whole bunch of problems. But most mainstream historians said, hey, we have no proof that this group of people existed. They probably didn't exist at all. And even if there were a little one, they definitely weren't a power that was big enough to actually hurt someone like Israel. So they probably didn't actually exist. They're probably just made up for stories. And that's what a lot of people believed until their capital city was found and excavated. And they pulled a library out that has 10,000 clay tablets explaining just how big this empire was, what it did, how much it rocked things, and also how many times it was messing with the people of Israel. Weird. The Bible is right. Crazy. Another one. Many people questioned for a long time whether or not anything considered the house of David, like David's descendants, were real. They're like, nah, David's mythical. No one cares about him. No one probably even said that until like the early 400 BC, so like 800-ish years after David existed. And then we started finding things like the Tel Dan Steel, in which an enemy of Israel is talking about how they went in and they wiped the floor with the king of Israel and the king of Judah, who they said was of the house of David. Oh, weird. We found stuff about Hezekiah from the time of Hezekiah's reign. King Neb, oh goodness, this is one of my favorites. I'm sorry, I'm gonna go a little bit over, guys. You can, I don't know, deal with it, I got you. <laughs> awesome. In Daniel, there's a king called Belshazzar. And this king, historians for a long time said, we have no record of this. We have great records of who was king during this time in Babylon. We know what the kings were. We have their lineages. We can see it. All of these kings exist. And the last one is this dude named uh, Nabonidus. He was the final king of Babylon. And he wasn't killed, like Daniel says happened to the king. He was taken off into prison, in captivity. So obviously the Bible's wrong and lying, right? Weirdly enough, we found a historical document basically a big old cylinder that had a whole bunch of history on the outside of it. That was actually a record from Nabonidus, that king they said was the last one. It was recording the history of a ziggurat he built and it had a request to his God. And it said, as for Belshazzar, my eldest son, the offspring of my heart, the fear of thy great divinity caused thou to exist in his heart. Let's not sin possess him. Let him be satisfied with fullness of life. Oh, 
Weird, the king that was carried off into prison had a son named Belshazzar. And as was practice in those days, there weren't very many people who could do things like talk over long distances. Telephones didn't exist, text didn't exist. If a king is taken away or gone for some reason, they would appoint in their stead a regent who would for all intent and purpose have the authority of the king. And that would likely have been his eldest son. Now what's cool about that is whenever Daniel's doing stuff in his book, he actually does some things that make Belshazzar like him a whole bunch. And then Belshazzar's like, thank you so much, I appreciate you, I'm going to raise you up so that you are my top advisor. You'll be the third person in the kingdom. Which doesn't make any sense in the story. Why would he raise him to be his top advisor and be number two? Oh, why wouldn't he make him number two? Well, that's because there's already someone before him, the full king. So Daniel, as second advisor, is the third in line. Fun. Pontius Pilate, people didn't believe existed or thought he was a small random person. And then whenever they started to find little texts that mentioned him, they were also like, oh, but Luke always uses the wrong title for him. They call him a procurator. He's not a procurator. No, Luke calls him, sorry, a prefect, which is governor. But the term that should have been used was procurator until they figured out, oh my goodness, whenever they were excavating in the city that was the central part of the Roman province of Judah, they found a block that is inscribed with the inscription, this paving stone has been dedicated on behalf of Caesar by Prefect Pontius Pilate. In the capital city, they would have reigned from. Not in question. Oh, he existed. <laughs> I cannot find a place where we can definitively prove that what historians say is accurate is actually accurate. But I can find numbers of places where historians have claimed the Bible is not accurate and then been wrong about it. It happened a lot. A lot. What I hit so far, is that four? One, two, three. One second. <laughs> yeah, I did do four. We're on to five. If, I'm sorry, we're still on four. If we can know what the Bible said, if we can know that every time it's demonstrated historically that it seems to know what it's talking about, why would we question any of the other things it says about itself? Fun story, the whole purpose of the Bible, the reason why the early church says it existed is because the people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' accounts started to die. And the church wanted to have record of their eyewitness accounts because what mattered in the New Testament was their message. That was the important part. That was what they needed to see. But that message, my goodness, it was copied by multiple people and it was carried through. And people like Luke, wrote down about it and did whatever he could. He actually says at the beginning of the book of Luke in the book of Acts, I set out to find an accurate record of everything that was written about this topic and to pull together so that I can tell you definitively what happened. And Luke, whenever he's writing his book, walks through and says, all right, at this time period, whenever Herod is king, all right, at this time period, whenever it was Quirinius's second 
uh, what's the word, census. Oh, in this time frame, whenever a whole bunch of random people were here, 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 and here, he is giving definitive, datable times whenever things happen, which is fun. Luke's why we know that Jesus likely was born around 6 BC. Did you guys think it was the year one? No, he was born around 6 BC because that's whenever the second census happened. We know when that census happened. Jesus was the reason the Bible was written. A message about him is what mattered. If you guys ever want to, you can just check out, just, just, just Google this. Google Wikipedia, list of biblical figures identified in extra biblical sources. That's a long list, guys. It's fun to read through. It's worth Wikipediaing if you don't know. But here's our final question. Does it matter? Does the Bible matter? So what if it's historically accurate? So what if it was early dated? So what? if it's the one that we have the most manuscript evidence is true. Who cares? Who cares about any of this? Why should we care? Well, there's one name that says why you should care, and that name is Jesus. Romans 1, 16 and 17 say this. Paul, writing to another church, says this. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The whole point of the Bible is to proclaim that gospel, that good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. That's why it exists. It exists to be able to enable you to carry it through and to learn about who he is and what he's done to be able to grow in knowledge, to be able to grow in wisdom, to be able to grow in your faith in him, to be able to place your trust in him. That's especially why the New Testament was written, obviously. But Jesus says this. Jesus also says that's why the Old Testament was written. In Luke 24, we read that Jesus, after he resurrected, went to his disciples on multiple occasions and began to teach them. Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written in me and in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. See, the whole point of the Old Testament was also to point forward to Jesus. The Old Testament points forward to him. The New Testament points back to his life and death and resurrection and points forward to what that means for our future. The entire thing is wrapped up in him from beginning to end. From creation to the end of time, it's all about him. The Bible is alive, it's living and breathing, sharper than any two-edged sword, capable of separating muscle from sinew, joint from marrow, soul from spirit, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Why do we have the Bible? Why do we have it? Because it enables us to know, to learn who Jesus is and what he's done. This morning, whenever I was sitting here, uh, Alyssa came and prayed over me like she generally prays over the people who are doing the message. 
And it's funny because one of the things she prayed for was what I was working on today. She prayed that we would know that what matters in this message is the gospel. And if we take nothing else, we should take this, that that message is what matters. And here we read about Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of God, Jesus' resurrection, which is the power of him breaking death. And we hear about him coming again. We know that to be a follower of Jesus, you have to know two things. You have to know that Jesus is who he said he is, Lord, and that he did what the Bible says he did, rose from the dead. That is where salvation comes from. The Bible tells a story. It tells his story. If we're made to follow him, serve him, and love him, and live like him, this is where learn about it and find our place in his story. If your source of direction is unreliable, you'll never know where you're at or which way you're going. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the miracle of the Bible. We thank you for the fact that you have given us a source of direction. One that is able to help us know that timeless truth that is the most important thing that lets us know who Jesus is and what he's done. Lord Jesus, may we revel in the fact that we have access to it. May we revel in the fact that we can see Jesus, that we can learn about you, that we can know you, you've been kind enough to leave us this text. May we not take our access to it for granted. Jesus, thank you. Thank you specifically for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for your death. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your life. In your name we pray.